I already had done it from the bottom up. I knew what it was like to, you know, have no money, cringe when I put my card down to pay, hoping it wouldn't be declined. We sacrificed all, so like, what else is there to lose at that point? Welcome to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. This is season two, episode four. Rebecca Minkoff is a fashion designer, podcast host, author, and founder of the Female Founder Collective. And though she's known far and wide for her namesake brand of clothing and accessories, including her uber popular handbags, Rebecca's entrepreneurial path was riddled with character shaping challenges from the start. In this episode, Rebecca shares the story of how her hard work, persistence, and creativity took her from humble brand beginnings through the post acquisition life she has today. I'm your host, Chris Allen, and this is part one of our conversation with fashion designer, Rebecca Minkoff. Hey, Rebecca, thanks for coming to the studio. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So good to have you. I was just saying a couple minutes ago that you know we talk about uh, success being no accident. And if there's anybody who knows that, it's you. Yeah? Yeah. And I hate when people say lucky. You're so yeah. lucky. Uh-huh. I'm like, really? There was a lot of hard work involved here. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a lot about that. I think it's really important, you know, especially with uh, stories and people's, you know, backgrounds and things like that. I know that pretty much everything about you is Googleable. So I'd love to get what I would consider the cliff notes of your origin story. Okay. We'll, we'll do a, you got the timer? I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> um, I fell in love with sewing when I was about eight. I wanted this dress. My mom said, no, I'll teach you how to make it, which is the last thing as I, I'm sure you hear from your kids. Your kids don't want to make things. They just want to be purchased. Yes. But once I began to see that I could have an idea and create it, it became very addicting. Went to a performing arts high school, too tall for the dancers and found myself in the costume department designing four hours a day and working with all the shows there. So by the time I was 18 and most of my friends were heading off to college, I said, I wanna go to work. And through my brother's friend that he met at a party, I got a phone number for a designer. This probably doesn't happen today. I'd be like, who is this person? We need to do a background check. But yeah. back then it was innocent. And they offered me a paid internship in New York City. So I moved and worked there, got hired, worked there for about three years. And then I said, I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm ready to start my own business, which was totally ready. Not, totally ready at 21. Yeah. yeah. Launched with a five piece collection that I thought was like the magnum opus of design. No one else really thought so. Mm -hmm. But I did come back from the Caribbean on a, on a small vacation with a cut up t-shirt, but it was I Love New York with beads and again through my brother who became my business partner later and CEO, mm -hmm. um, he was having dinner with a famous actress who wanted one. So I sent it to her on September 9th, 2001. She wore it on Jay Leno a couple weeks after that. He said, who's your shirt by? She said my name. And again, pre-social media, it was just in the magazines over and over again. There was one nascent website with barely like, you know, a terrible digital phone camera. And she was getting orders left and right. And I said, you need to pay me in advance. I have no money and I'll go back down to Canal Street and make get the shirts and then cut them up and make them. And that was how oh my goodness. it started. And um, how long did it take to make one of those shirts? Uh, about 15 minutes. Really? Yeah. So you I, could do it today? You could just do it today? I could do it in my sleep because that's all I did for nine months. No way. Yeah. I didn't make any money, <laughs> but, I had, but my name got out there. Yeah, your name got out there. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, it's a pretty iconic shirt that you made even more iconic. Yeah, I think people wanted to have that shirt, but they didn't, you know, it's boxy, it's kind of, you know, 
I guess gender neutral is now a thing, but back then you wanted something that was unique. Yeah. So the fact that I cut it up and bedazzled it, you know, made made women want it. And um, so you kind of, you know, the Cliff Notes was great and it's amazing. And one of the things I think you might have glazed over is the fact that you sent it on September 9th, 2001. Yeah. Yep. Two days later, September 11th happens. Correct. I love New York shirt shows up at shortly thereafter and it just blows up. Yes. So what, what was it like to be not only living in New York, right, at the time, but also be a part of that moment in that way? So I was at, I had had my first fashion show September 10th. It was a group show because we as designers, you know, young people couldn't afford a show. Important people like my parents were in the audience. So yeah. it was about the whole audience was. And I thought that the next day, like, oh, it's, it's all gonna happen for me. And I went to a, it's, I mean, you might laugh, but like Cotton Incorporated has color and cotton seminars. Okay. So I was for work, had to go the next morning and we're in the middle of the seminar and this woman with a very Southern accent comes in. She's like, oh my God, the towers, they're falling. No and I, way. Yes, I was like, who is this woman? Why, what towers? What, why are towers falling? <laughs> oh, geez. And then we turned on the news and your life shifted and my parents yes. were on their way to the airport so my first thought was, were they in the plane? Oh, geez. Cell phone towers were going down. There was lines of pay phones. I waited in line. My mom was like, you need to get out of here. We're, we're, we got a rental car, like the last one. We're driving basically back home. I said, no, I'm staying. This is my city. Wow. And right away, I went down to where I knew we could help and support. And so stood outside one of the hospitals. We were just trying to do anything we can. And then later on, with a group of volunteers, we were the only other ones kind of allowed. Uh, we were at the site. And my job was to make sure that all the rescue workers were hydrated and had a cot that they could sleep in some snacks. So mm -hmm. I was like the snack and drink lady. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for the first week. And then my boss at the time was like, you need to come back to work. And I was like, how can I come back to work? Yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, but it was crazy. I mean, you'd go down to the site and it was, you couldn't see more than a foot in front of your face. Uh, because of the dust. And it was just like the world had ended. Yeah, and then, you know, there's all these iconic sort of New York moments where, you know, the Yankees game and all of the, all of the things that, have, that we all see and remember, especially that time of year. And then Jay Leno, The Tonight Show has, you know, your shirt on display. Yes. And it was, uh, it was in clear support of all the first responders and everything that had just happened to band the city together. Correct, so an actress, Jenna Elfman, who was on Dharma and Greg, now she's on Fear the Walking Dead. She wore it and he said, I love your shirt, who is it? She said my name on national television. And yeah. from there, the I guess it was phone calls, it wasn't emails really yet, yeah. uh, came in and you know, Us Weekly ran it over and over, Lucky Magazine, InStyle, like it just kept running in magazines and I just kept crediting this one little website, which is again, e-commerce was very new. Yeah. And so that's how the name got out there. It allowed me to call boutiques later on and say, hey, I said my name. They're like, I've heard of you. I don't know why. I guess mm -hmm. you can come in and show me what else you got. Mm -hmm. So that is what you're doing for nine months is mm -hmm. making those shirts. So you, it did demand trail off or do you just go, I'm out? <laughs> demand didn't trail off. I mean, obviously there was a spike yeah. and then it sort of petered, but I wanted to focus on my other designs. Yeah. And I was making everything by hand. This was before bags. And so for about four years, I had a very quaint uh, handmade clothing mm -hmm. line. I paid the bills by also being a stylist. Mm -hmm. 
uh, for photo shoots and stuff. And so that's how I got by, but it was starting to get rough. Like, all right, is there really, is this really ever gonna go somewhere? Cause I can't live like this. Yeah. You know, I was about to go take a bartending job or be a receptionist somewhere else. And I just said, what's gonna make this pop? And then it was the bag. So that's the first thing that really popped. You talked about the fashion show having, you know, kind of the five pieces that you thought were awesome. Then you have this t-shirt that ends up being amazing. And then is the bag when you're like, I can have, this is going to be a business. I didn't think that. So same incredible. I call her my angel came calling. She said, I'm doing a movie, Jenna. Uh, The bag is a really important part of the character. And can you make bags? And I was like, yeah, totally. Yes, I can. Yes, it's official. (laughs) Didn't know how to make a bag to save my life. Wow. But I knew where to get them made because I was already making leather jackets and stuff. And so I had this idea for a bag, sent it to her. It arrived two hours late to set. So they started shooting with someone else's bag, which was devastating. It was the last 1600 bucks I had. No Uh, way. I was like, I wanted to throw up. I was just like, this was my one chance to be in a feature film and now it's ruined. And I was like, I guess I'll just wear the bag around, right? What else can I do? And enough women stopped me that I thought, okay, there's something to this silhouette, the shape. And I showed it to a friend of mine in LA who was a buyer for a store. And I said, what do you think? She goes, I love it. I'm gonna put it in the store, but then I'm gonna have Daily Candy. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with Daily Candy. No. You, know, you shouldn't be. I'd be nervous if you were. I'd be questioning you. I'm just saying. Um, so, I tried to warn you earlier. So tell us what it is. So Daily Candy, and it's, I'm really dating myself here, but Daily Candy was this one email a day of the newest, hottest, latest, and it was written in this really cheeky format. Uh-huh. And that was when you wanted email, okay? Yeah. Let's all remember that. Yeah. So you were looked forward to receiving this. So they wrote about it, and that's when things went crazy. That's when demand was like, oh my gosh, I've never experienced anything like this. The 12 bags sold out. They reordered 75. I called my dad. I was like, I don't have any money. Like, how am I going to make this order? And he's like, I'm not loaning you any. You already have a credit card bill that has my name on it that you don't know how you're going to pay. So maybe call your brother. And so we teamed up and my brother was like, I'll loan you five grand. Okay, pay it back. I'll loan you 10. And you know, eventually yeah. got to numbers where he mortgaged his house. We couldn't get a credit line. We couldn't wow. get a loan, nothing. No one would give us money. Even with orders? Even with orders. It wow. was like, you're too new of a business. We, you know, you've been around for less than a year. So we started getting taken seriously at about the half a million dollar mark. Uh-huh. But before that, it was his house. It was maxing out his cards. And his wife would say, I just went grocery shopping. What is happening? So you're bootstrapping, trying to figure out how you're gonna make this thing happen. So there's something, there's a couple of uh, themes, what some might, might call happy accidents, but something that is a theme that I've picked up on is you and your brother tend to meet people and build relationships with people that br- bring you introductions and they look like accidents, but it's really all about the relationships. It is incredibly purposeful. Mm-hmm. I used to you know, go out and if I collected business cards, I'd go home at night like it was cash, like relationship, 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 you know, mm-hmm. like new opportunity. And I think that the only reason we're here is the relationships mm-hmm. we built and making sure that it was an even exchange or, or I can't do what you did for me, but I can do something, you know, so our first, uh, fact, in the fashion industry, our first loan came from a factor. So they advance on purchase orders and they collect. Um, and they also check the credit of the store to make sure it's safe to ship. So, you know, they went 
deep with us in a wow. way that like we shouldn't be lending you this much money, but we will. So what can I do for them? I can show up at their table and be the arm candy for the night at the fundraiser. I can mm -hmm. speak for them. I can deliver a graduation speech. So it's really about this two-way, what can I do for you that I think has really helped us. Well, I think that that says something about who you are and how you think about people and how you think about relationships because that doesn't necessarily come natural to people. It's like, what's in it for me? Mm -hmm. And for you, you were saying, what can I do to be a part of and to contribute to? Why, why, where did that come from? My first boss, the CEO of the designer I worked for uh, is half Japanese and she was like, you always say thank you. You always send a thank you note or a gift when someone does something for you. And she really honed that in, like be grateful, show your gratitude. Mm -hmm. And I think her repeating that to me over and over again, uh, really just came through in the way of how can I show my gratitude? How can mm -hmm. I show you that this isn't, I'm not using you to get to the top, mm -hmm. but that along the way, I'm trying to do what I can, even if it's perceivably you know, uneven, how can I make it so that you feel like I didn't just take something from you and run? So that sounds like gratitude, which seems so simple, but you evolved it and made it your own. How to say thank you in your own way. And you use some of the creativity that you have to be able to do that. Yeah, for sure. That's powerful. And, and I think that um, that's an X factor that really helped you, right? What do you think is maybe another X factor that was intentional and purposeful, you know, about your business or about your story that people might not, might not pick up on? The idea that you're going to persist in spite of you can't even make this, you know what, up. You wow. know, just like, well, what else am I going to do? You know, and mm -hmm. I think to some degree, when you have nothing to fall back on, what do you, what do you have to lose? Mm -hmm. I already had done it from the bottom up. I knew what it was like to you know have no money you know, cringe when I put my car down to pay, hoping mm -hmm. it wouldn't be declined or my brother again mortgaging his house. And we sacrificed all. So like, what else is there to lose at that point? Yeah. Um, I and think- so you bet on yourself. That was all I could do. Wow. Cause what was I gonna go? I was like, I can't think of a single thing that would make me want to get up in the morning. So, all right, I'll, I'll struggle through this a little bit more. And I, I was just mentoring a designer and she was like, you know, we're doing $40,000 a year in sales, which is not a lot. Yeah. And she's like, I think we want to sell the company. I was like, no one's going to buy it. You know, you're going to have to live like this for a while. You want to know what I made? You know, I was married with roommates. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, trying to scam them for their electrical bill. You oh, know, like it, it was like, you know, you have to suffer through this. It's not, it's not this like zero to a hundred million that, that people just read in magazine articles. That's amazing. They're like, she's like, we had 40,000 in sales and she's like, I'm going to get like 2X EBITDA. You know? And you're like $16,000. That sounds great. Okay. Well, one of the things that I think is really powerful is, uh, you know, the moments that startups happen. And so tell us a little bit about the brand and how the business was born. So the business was officially born once, once there was traction on the bags and my brother said, let's formalize this. And so for a while he would, he was my daily phone call, then he would fly up and we really had to figure out who do you staff up with first? I had an intern. Okay, good. Uh, you know, we really felt like we were outsiders within this industry. We had a showroom, so they were taking care of sales. So we really had to focus on design, PR and graphic design. That mm -hmm. was it at the time, production. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was a very tiny five person team that we could, you know, again, we were bootstrapping. So we could only afford someone 
if when you we had, had orders. If we had the orders and the money mm-hmm. to pay them. So it was very tiny, it was lean. We couldn't get an office lease, so I convinced my landlord to rent me in a, another apartment in my building and that was my office. Wow. And that was after working out of my, you know, my apartment with five people and my boyfriend would wake up and be, wanna watch TV on the couch. And I'd be like, no, it's 9 a.m. We, we should be working. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So I think we always made decisions, especially at that time, of where we could see white space and take advantage. So social media was just beginning. The only form of advertising or reaching your customer was through a store or a magazine. We didn't have $40,000 for an ad in Vogue. Yeah. So the fact that we could talk to our customer online was like mind blowing. Yeah. And when I did, stores and media were like, you shouldn't talk to your customer. You're making a huge mistake. You need to be better than her. You need to be perceived as like, I'm holier than thou. And my brother and I felt like, why? This is great. We get feedback, we do surveys, we're doing crowdsourcing. I mean, it's I was- It's for them. It's for them. Yeah. And I was taking orders, especially during the 2008 recession, early crowdsourcing. They were like, can you bring back the purple from 2006? I'm like, yeah, send me your credit cards and I'll go uptown and make it. And that's, what I, that's how we did it. Wow. And so I think that for us, that constant connection to the customer and never getting to the place where you're like, to them yeah. really made her loyal. Well, what year is it that we're talking about right there? That was 2007, 2008. So from 2001 to 2007, 2008 was likely challenging times. It never wasn't challenging. Okay. I'll say that. Yeah. Up until the bitter end <laughs> <laughs> when we sold the company. Oh, it was, man. Yeah. That is unbelievable. Okay, so so But there are mistakes in that. Yeah, talk to us about the mistakes. Like what are like the first the first one was super clear. It's like, hey, let's watch TV during business hours. <laughs> that was that was one that you were like, hey, no, no, that one's obvious. What are some of the not obvious mistakes? Okay, so within my industry, um, at the time, you know, my brother kept saying, We're bootstrapping it, it's gonna be really uncomfortable for just the next five years, don't worry about it. And I was like, Okay, but you just stay where you continue to sew. <laughs> exactly, sew those bags. Yeah. Um, I think that there can be too lean of an organization that halts growth, yeah. but there's also people that are just like, oh, just give me the money and it'll be so easy. And that's not the answer either. So I think there is a right amount that's conservative. I think we were too lean for too long. Mm-hmm. When we did take in private equity money, they were of the mindset of, Let's grow this to the next billion dollar Michael Kors, Tory Burch, yeah, Kate Spade, yeah. pump it and just sell. And then when we went to sell, the tone changed and they said, well, are you profitable? We're like, no one ever said we had to be profitable. We just thought we needed to grow. Just to grow top line. That's exactly. what we're supposed to do. But we're not a tech company, mm-hmm. you know? And we're a product company and these products have- The cost of goods is- real yeah like yeah. even the gentleman who who's now the ceo who who purchased my company he said you guys thought you were like a tech company like that's how you did this yeah which is cool but like this margin that you need to make in order to have profit is higher than most especially yeah. with bags yeah and so he's like i'm in awe you got this far i have no idea how you did it but like that's not how apparel and um handbag companies can actually do this. So Did you get a tech com- company multiple from this person? No. No? Okay. <laughs> nice. Uh, but he's a great man. So I think that- <laughs> I had to ask. I have a great you know life. I mean? Okay. Um, 
So I think that that was the first mistake was this, all the investors are saying, grow, grow, grow. And then it's like, we should have focused on profitability. And I remember a very distinct conversation with my brother and our president at the time. I said, why can't we be a small company that grows stably, have nice lives, you know, pay for what we want and call it a day. Make it a lifestyle business. And he was like, don't you want to be the next Michael Kors or whatever? And at the time, being so starved, right? Still still being married with roommates, I was like, oh, it would be nice to like maybe sell for a couple hundred mil. But I think in hindsight, that it would have been the right thing to do to grow slower, more profitable, and mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a really difficult challenge when you're, ha- I mean, because it sounds like you went from bootstrapping to private equity. That's a big jump. It was seven years. But to private equity, you didn't go like angel and then like venture. That's not how it was done. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it was private equity. There was no VC money Uh at all. There was one guy who gave us the the price tag we should have gone with. And and he was the only VC and the rest, that was private equity was doing all those deals. Because private equity is all about, the level of predictability that you have to have with private equity is hard as crap. Yep. You have to. I mean, it is the. I mean, the the tension there is really high with private equity. So, yes. like, that's an advanced move, in my opinion, right? To go from bootstrap to that. It was, yeah, it was that our factor, who again had overextended themselves by many millions at that time, and then private equity was who was buying up fashion companies. Wow. Yeah. Did you get any maybe synergy or benefit from their network? None. Wow. Yeah. That is interesting. I mean, that's one of the benefits of private equity is the the they've got other resources that can come and help and You know what it was and and I think the gentleman who was the managing partner of us, it was supposed to be this woman who was excited about fashion. Uh-huh. And this guy came in and he wasn't excited about fashion. And so for him it was just the reports. Send me the reports and the spreadsheets mm-hmm. and the quarterly meetings where I would literally sit there on my phone under the table being like, "What is Means. <laughs> you're like you're like that's just the number that is gonna help us sell the company. <laughs> <laughs> not important not important no but this color of leather yes. is very important oh my gosh i freaking love that so <laughs> one of the things that i've been really interested in talking about as a marketer is the name of your company mm-hmm. rebecca minkoff yep what is it like to have your name as the brand what goes through your mind about like it's your name. Yeah. So there's what you can and can't do, what you should and shouldn't do. Is there like brand management stuff, even post acquisition? I mean, talk to like, what is the deal? Oh, it is a, it is a complicated world. That I, I'm in right I'm, now. I am ready to listen. Okay. So in the <laughs> beginning, when it's your name and your company, it's only what I think, yeah. right? And only how I want it to be. Uh-huh. And then you go, well, we gotta, we gotta, I live in New York, people in coastal cities tend to make more fashion forward choices. It can't only be what I want. What is the middle of the country like and how do you take the essence of the brand and water it down a little bit because they're not exposed to the runway shows and you know, like I'm temporarily living in Florida, I'm wearing stretch pants and sneakers every day. Yeah, My fashion sense is a little bit It's changed, Yeah. yeah. So how do you take a bag and fit it for a different customer? And then you get purchased and it's like, well, we need to go from zero to 100. So how do we make even more products with your name on it that makes sense? And you're not Mm -hmm. always going to say, this is my favorite item 
I love absolutely everything because now you're making for yourself and your customer and, and someone else far, far away who, who just knows the name, they know nothing else. Wow. So it's sort of, you know, a good friend of mine was like, as long as at the top and at the very bottom of diluting it, it still has a thread that goes back to downtown uh, romantic, rock and roll, hardware. As long as you can get that, you're good. The minute you start saying, we should be like everybody else, which was definitely a theme that went on within my company, not by me, but buyers would come in, we want the tote to say this, we want the wallet to say this, can you give us this in these colors? For a long time, these stores were playing designer and their retort, if you said no, would be like, okay, we'll just go get it from someone else. And then your head of sales would be like, do you Look want the business or not? Mm -hmm. And when we gave into that, that's when it was bad. That's when you looked at it and you're like, we just took all that stuff back. Because our customer was like, no, you're not known for this. So I think you always just have to make sure that the thread of dilution still resonates. It's still the same girl. Mm -hmm. Maybe not you know, the one who's dressing out of Vogue, but you're not suddenly like, wait, that looks like it belongs to some other brand. Wow. Are there things that, like you t mentioned having to take something back. What's sort of the biggest L you took on the, having to buy something back or take something back? I won't name the store, but they uh -huh. wanted a computer bag that said nerd alert on it. Okay. It was a very large order. And you complied. I said no. Okay. And that's when my former president said, well, do you want the sales or not? Do you want to be the one responsible that no one gets their bonus? And I was like, no. Oh my God. <laughs> we took most of them back. Okay. Yeah. Most of them. So I think one of the things that has been interesting to just kind of read about is you have been constantly thinking about like what's next or having, you know, you talked about emerging technologies and things like that. So talk to us a little bit about how you started to get angles and using things like social media, you know, and you maybe using email or maybe some of the more advanced things that have been going on the past few years. How, how have you sort of been an early adopter of those and how have you seen it change the way you do business? So the early adoption originally took place with, again, talking to the customer, which was mind blowing, using influencers, which at the time were considered D-list celebrities. We would have these fashion shows and the editors couldn't sit in front of them or see them or be near them because they were these lowly, lowly people. And then as new things came out, uh, most of the credit here goes to my brother. He was in technology prior to working with me. And so in the way that I could tell you that red's gonna be this color's summer, the, the color of the summer, he knew stuff that was coming. So mm -hmm. from our store of the future to the screens and the dressing rooms, he really had a great sense of that. And some of the timings of the stuff was uncanny. like our store and uh, you know we did uh, self-checkout the same day that Amazon launched it. We did wearables the wow. same day that Apple launched theirs. So we kept hitting these moments where we didn't know that was happening, but man, it was great timing. and We could be the other person people were talking about. And I was a great student. I would watch him and you know, I really began to think about Web3 when I was weirdly enough doing an interview for my book and the, the interviewer said, why aren't you doing this yet? And I was like, oh man, we're too late. Which was 2021. Wow. Not really that too late. So the next collection I did, we had a you know, a web three component. So you could buy the goods on OpenSea, Fidgetal, the real good, the fake good. Then the next time we came back, we did just fantasy NFTs. And we're experimenting. We're seeing what works. There's no 
surefire, like this is the thing that's gonna transform the company. Yeah. You know, you obviously only read about the people that were like, I did an NFT and made $2 million in 90 minutes, like mm -hmm. a friend of mine did. And I'm mm -hmm. like, well, that didn't happen to us, but we did good. We sold out in nine minutes. Yeah, there you go. And so my next experiment actually is coming out in two months and it, and it might be the last, I'm not gonna lie to you. Wow. Just because things are changing so quickly and you need a team of people that's mm -hmm. gonna be all in here if you want to be successful. Not in the beginning, but if you're gonna keep you know, I can only throw so much to my team and say, guys, stop doing the things that make us all the money and focus on some digital assets. So we like to play, we like to be first. It has benefited the company greatly. And I think a lot of bigger companies are scared, right? They wanna wait till they see everyone else kind of fail and yeah. succeed and then pick a direction. We like to be in the iteration phase. So that's a testament to like some of the risk taking, you know, like it was interesting a couple of minutes ago, you're sitting here saying, you're like, well, what else would I do? And it's like, there's probably some really logical person out there. Like there's like 600 things you could go to, <laughs> to you. You're like, what else am I going to do? And, but there's this moving forward thing that you have that is really, really interesting. And what does that do to the people around you? You know what I mean? The yeah. people you're closest to in the business, do they, do they feel like it's gyrating or are they just like, just follow or just do whatever she, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> what, what is it like for the people around you? Some of them love it and some of them hate it. So okay. my design team loves it, but they're also like, I can't take on anything more, please. You know, uh -huh. even though this was really cool and they were so proud of the results. Mm -hmm. You know, a woman on my team who heads up all my partnerships and PR is like, I'll do this with you, but you didn't hire me for this. Mm -hmm. And then she'll be texting me on call. She's like, I don't even know what I'm talking about right now, but we'll, she'll be saying all the right things. And I'm like, you got it. You know exactly Just what you're doing. Going. So I said, you know, you get to learn something new. Like it's fun to take on a challenge. That's yeah. why I loved writing a book because I didn't know anything about writing a book or starting a podcast. You know, you can only pick the same leather and make a bag so many hundred times. So to be able to venture out and do new stuff for me is really exciting. So you are a chase the spark kind of person. I am. Okay, that resonates with me. I tend to chase the spark. The people around me have similar feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say. Let's just say. So, you know, I really feel like there's the people that you work with and then there's the customers that you sell to that you, you're, you've been sort of resonating with. When you talk about customer feedback, Talk to us about that moment where I think it's Cynthia O'Connor that like, I'm just saying, I, that was a good look. I, did, I, <laughs> I had people help, let's just say, let's just say. Talk to us about that whole story and how you sort of devoured feedback. Okay. I do wanna say that we are in an era and even as a parent, right? Where like your kid gets told something offensive and then you wanna be like, I'm gonna kill that kid. Right, It's really hard for people to take feedback yes. and they take it as an offense. But I knew early on, because I get to say I'm still a millennial, I think we, we were the last generation where you could receive bad feedback and not like shrivel up. This is a thing. And be a, a little wilting flower. So she said, do you wanna be in this business? This is what's wrong with your bag. This was the first bag, it was the showroom. She was like the rainmaker for handbag designers. Yeah and all the brands she had were doing between 50 and 50 million. So I wanted to be in that category. And she was like, your hardware is brass, brass tarnishes, the customer won't like that. I thought that was a beautiful aspect to it. Like mm -hmm. I loved that it aged. 
and then you know this hardware is cheap and this is gonna fall off and this blah, 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 and like you've got to imagine that you're picking a leather that has to go on a boat sustain you know hot and cold yeah. and still look beautiful and then last and so she said you know when you figure out the changes you need to make to improve it let me know and she honestly didn't think I was coming back and I spent a week you little know little did she know little did she know I was like oh I'll take your feedback. <laughs> yeah. Try being a dancer and being told oh. all kinds of horrible things I and mean. having to still show up. Mm -hmm. So I showed up a week later. She's like, I didn't think you'd come back. And I was like, here's the fixed bag. She goes, much better, still need some work, but I'll take you on. Not because the bag is perfect, because I see that you're willing to hear the feedback and you're willing to do something about it. And I think, wow. I think if someone can get good at, this person's trying to help me with the feedback that I don't want to hear, or they're trying to hurt me and becoming an expert in when they're just being just mean, or if they're like, I really genuinely want you to succeed and here's the 10 things that are why you're not. You have to have a mindset to be able to think like that. Like it's one of those things like if you're encountering critical feedback and you're trying to decide which bucket it goes in, right? And it could go in both buckets, right? They could be trying to tear you down a little bit and be a little serious at the same time. You have to really think about what you're thinking about and not be sort of triggered and offended, right? Yes. So w what are some of the things that have helped you sit there and receive that? Is it in the moment that you can sort of not get triggered? Is it, and maybe you, you're hearing it in the moment and you can discern whether it's you know critical to tear down or critical to construct? Or is it like after the fact where you just sit there and receive and then you're, you process it all? How do you sort of know which bucket it goes on or what's your process that you go through? I think it can be both. I think it, if you can get good at reading people, if someone's like, I really wanna help you, mm. you're like, mm, what's about to come out of their mouth is total garbage, right? Or if someone's like, you are fucking up Royal and here are the things you need to do. Like at least they're angry and they're providing solutions, but there's not this like evil sort of mean intention yeah. or covertly hostile intention that I think if you can get good at reading people, you'll pick up on. Okay. So if you, if you get the like, mm, you know what? Or if you leave that room feeling a little bit smaller, then you go, oh, that's probably all garbage. Uh, I'll give you can a great you, example. Yes, to unpack that. Okay, third baby. I was overworked. I was trying to find the next hit. It wasn't resonating with the customer. And I was like, maybe I don't have it anymore, you know? And I'm gonna go out on this leave and I'm gonna really disconnect and put in someone who lives and breathes design all day because it's getting harder to live and breathe design and be the face and do the social and be a mom and travel yeah. for work uh, and be the best at being a designer. Here she is 60 hours a week, just that's all she cares about. Mm -hmm. So I said, here are the keys. I'm out for three months. I don't wanna hear it. And we hired this brilliant, well, I thought she was brilliant at the time, CMO. And she, in her meeting, killed it. And red flag number one was immediately she went to kill off my PR person. And then she went to kill off our relationships and working with bloggers. And then when I get back, her first words to me on my first day back, which is for a mom coming back, if you are one, it's like, you're going through a little bit of an identity crisis. You haven't slept. You're like, mm -hmm. can I do this? And she's like, it would be easier for me if you did not exist. 
And I was like, this is great. This is going to be a great time. So you went from a great interview to that. <laughs> that was, I was it. like, well, I am, I am here. And so everything she's going to do is going to be to remove, you know, her job would be easier if I didn't exist. Yeah. She could just go have a blank slate to create a brand that just was whatever it could be, right? Too bad the company name is... That's where she struggled, name. right? So mm -hmm. I, I began to see that anything she would do would probably not be great. And it took a while and a lot of butting heads and eventually it didn't work out for her. Mm -hmm. But I think that when you can get good at, I wasn't quick enough to read her and that's when I said, I will never let this happen again. Mm -hmm. But now I'm really good and I'm like, all right, danger, red alert, red alert. This person's just here to hurt you, harm you, make you smaller and, and you gotta get them out. Not all heads of marketing are like that. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But you know what? The at the them. same time, <laughs> She had brilliant ideas. Mm -hmm. So that's where sometimes you go, this person is evil, but so smart. Mm. And sometimes you have to, you know, like my brother, I, I was pursuing something in the NFT world based on an article he sent me. And he's like, you know who sent me that article? And I was like, no. No way. Her? I don't want to do anything that's related to her. So you have to sometimes know, like, there's good and bad mixed. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole deal. To be able to receive uh, something like that that's good from somebody that uh, you experienced as not good, right? That takes a lot of, hu that's humility in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, you know, when she completely sort of did remove me from the process and I was like twiddling my thumbs for a couple of weeks, that's when I started the podcast, that's when I launched Female Founder Collective. Uh -huh. So I go, oh God, her doing that created this, these two magical things. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's weird. It can it can be a mind fuck sometimes. So did you discover that like I, there was a key thing that you said just a couple of minutes ago where you were like I need a sabbatical basically, and you were like I don't know if I have it anymore, and then you had this whole moment. What where did you land there, and where did you start create? It sounds like you started creating elsewhere mm -hmm. to really find that again. So talk talk to us about how you found, you know, the thing again, and did you discover that you don't have it anymore with fashion? So when I didn't have anything to do for a couple of weeks and she was like, don't worry, we're gonna give you something to do. You know, I was like waiting and I was like, I can't, I'm not the type of person that can just sit and do nothing, you know, or be a lady who lunches. So that's immediately when I was like, I have so many incredible women that I know, so many great relationships. How could I tell their stories? That was the podcast. And then for Female Founder Collective, I was like, we don't have that group that we go golfing with. You know, yeah. who do I share my struggles with? Yes, I have my brother, but like it's a little different for a woman. And mm -hmm. so went on to create that. But that brought an added dimension to the company that became really valuable, not just for the, the company, but the customers. And I didn't lose my design. I just had to also admit that when, when you are doing something and you are a professional at it, some jobs take longer or more depth and you can't do it all. You can't be on the road, you know, X amount of time, you know, and be the best designer and be the best content creator. And, you know, like you sort of have to pick. And I think after 18 years of selecting the very fibers of this jumpsuit or whatever, I was like, I don't need to do It's okay if you chose cotton. I'm good with that. Mm -hmm. I can still be out there and feel like I had a hand in it, but it's also okay that you did great too. And so it's a little bit of a, passing of the baton, but doesn't mean I'm not in design, doesn't mean I don't design anything. Mm -hmm. My whole spring collection was inspired by a trip I took to Mexico. So I think that it, it just changes. So what role are you 
Maybe what roles have, did you play at the company? What are the major roles that you've, you've played over time and where are you at now? So in the beginning it was just design, then it was PR, marketing, you know, social media. Then it was, well, how are we gonna have a fashion show? How are we gonna, we don't have the money to pay for that. Oh, I guess I'll go raise some money, you know? And so, you know, people would sponsor the show. So now primarily my role is well, in no order, right? Yeah, yeah. Like people think of me as the founder. I'm obviously front and center on the social media. That does take time to do yeah. design. But again, I'm not in every meeting every day anymore. Mm-hmm. I have my meetings with my team. They present. I yay, nay. They go on. Okay. I'll bring in a jacket. I'll be like, entire collection based on this jacket. They'll be like, you're so annoying, but okay. And then really these events and activations that we've been doing, uh, whether we showed up in Aspen last year for President's Day weekend and this big activation and a dinner series. And you know, it's fun. It's fun. Again, I'm learning something new. And so, yeah. so there's a next generation, right, that is coming up through the ranks in, your, in the company you're a founder of. Yep. And you were that person, you know, at one point. And you talked about millennials being the last generation that can take feedback and I wonder what what are some of the things that you're either observing or doing to kind of bring the this next generation up in a way that you feel like could be leveled up to where like their floors your ceiling. I would say that the people that I work closest to again want the instant gratification immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, a woman that I that works with me that's thirty, she's like, I thought I was going to be a millionaire by thirty. I was like, well, at 30, I was making $45,000 a year. She's like, that's not how it is now. And I was like, okay, well, I'm happy to help you figure that out. Let's, let's, let's game this out. How are we gonna get you there? You know, you won't be 30, mm-hmm. but maybe you'll be 40. I don't know. Um, and so I think it's making sure that this younger generation has these time horizon expectations. Like you can get your coffee, you can get your, Uber Eats, your Instacart, all that can be instant. But like this career stuff, I don't know of a quick way to do it. I just don't. That's not how I built my career. I'm sure it's not how you built yours. And so like it is a 10 year, 15, 20 year journey. And you can hop from company to company and you'll see your biggest raises and bonuses that way. Mm -hmm. But do you want to start over every couple of years and do that? Like, why don't you make this a home and figure out how you can build longevity? Or if it is your business, you know, 10 years from now, tell me that you haven't been able to create a brand. Don't come to me in one. Yeah, because it, it's not going to have anywhere near a legacy or anything. It's not going to have any power or authority, I guess is probably the right thing to do because 10, 10 years is a lot and consistency is a lot over those 10 years. Correct. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that I hear as a theme often is the persistence over time and the consistent behaviors that you have to do over time are the things that are going to make you really successful and that that's it's been a testament and i think that i think it was really interesting that you know people say that you're so lucky right but just how intentional it is and how persistent you had to be over time you you know it took you you know 10 years to be an overnight success correct Right. And I think that people hit that lowest low and they're like, oh man, I don't ever want to experience this again. But I think you'll see that your career, hopefully if it's going in the right direction, it might not look like this, but it's a slow, you know, there's a, if you chart a line, it's going up, it might be very slightly, but as long as it's going in that direction, you're going in the right direction. And you have to, you know, 
the highs are only good because it was so low. Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. If you'd like more information on how we can help you run and grow a better business, see the show notes of this episode or visit our website at estudio.life. Join us next time for the concluding part of our conversation with Rebecca Minkoff or see the podcast listing for more inspiring stories from entrepreneurs who have been in your shoes.